So uh, last night, Angela and I decided uh, to watch Christmas movies. Who has started watching Christmas movies yet this season? I know, right? It's hard to get into the Christmas spirit this year. I'm not sure why that is exactly. I have my, my speculations, but they're mine alone, so I'm, I won't get into those. But we, we landed on one of our favorite Christmas movies, that being uh, White Christmas. I know a lot of us go in for the Santa Claus and Santa Claus 2 and 3 and 5 and 8. And the classics for me are the thing that brings me into the Christmas spirit. And there's one line in a song that Bing Crosby sings that speaks about blessings. He, he says, when I'm worried and I can't sleep, I count my blessings instead of sheep. Then I go to sleep, counting my blessings. That's a great line. It's almost biblical, it's so good. Well, it has biblical foundations because the blessings that we receive from God are really the thing that gives us this spirit of Christmas. Isaiah talks about three of these blessings. He talks about prophecy. He talks about promises. And he talks about preparation. I'm in Isaiah chapter 11 this morning. That wasn't the uh, assigned reading by the lectionary. But um, I want to deviate from the lectionary a little bit today. And start with Isaiah chapter 11. Because in chapter 11, Isaiah speaks about the coming Messiah. If you have your Bibles, if you turn them to chapter 11, I'll begin with verse 1. Isaiah says, A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So he begins his prophetic word with a description of Jesus who will come out of the house of David, out of the lineage of Jesse, who will have as his attributes, as part of his character, wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and this fear of the Lord, which really just means a reverence for God the Father. This is the Jesus of the first advent, the one for whom we're making all our seasonal preparations to, to receive him. This is Messiah Jesus for whom we're setting up our Christmas and our, our Christmon trees. Isn't that a beautiful tree, by the way? Hanging our wreaths, we're lighting our Advent candles. We're singing hymns and carols. This, this is the baby Jesus for whom we are gearing up to celebrate with holiday gatherings and family get-togethers and presents, all those things. 
But after that third verse, Isaiah's prophecy, as he continues, his prophetic word changes its focus. Isaiah shifts from his focus from the babe in the manger, from the Jesus of the first advent to the Jesus Christ of the second advent. The Christ who will come again to rule and to judge. It reminds me of one of my other favorite guilty pleasures is, is that movie Talladega Nights where he's talking about the baby Jesus. And then he says, he, he did grow up, you know, right? So Isaiah is acknowledging Talladega Nights and he's saying that the baby Jesus, the subject of the first advent Changes. It begins. You like that one, Gene? <laughs> it changes from the focus on the first advent, on the baby Jesus in the manger, and then shifts its focus to the second advent, where Christ comes not as the baby, but as the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Listen to what he says. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor. Now, that's not saying that somebody who doesn't have money needs to be judged. That's not that kind of poor. We're talking about the poor in spirit. With righteousness, he'll judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Well, that's pretty intense, isn't it? That's not the Christmas message we typically hear. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. See, Isaiah is saying that Jesus won't judge by appearances. He won't decide on the basis of hearsay. He'll judge those who are in spiritual need by what is right. He'll render decisions on the earth's poor with justice. His words will bring everyone to attention. They'll make everybody wake up. A mere breath from his lips will topple the wicked. Each morning he'll pull on sturdy work clothes, the message version says, and work boots, and he'll build righteousness and faithfulness in the land. See, Isaiah gives us this glimpse of the coming reign of Christ as king. It's a kingdom of peace. And unity, not at all like the chaos and the disorder and the hostility that we see in our world today following the first advent. See, the kingdom of the second advent is markedly different. Isaiah continues in verse 6, he tells us about this peaceful kingdom. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, Isaiah paints a picture where natural enemies are no longer natural enemies. And 
don't read too much into the, the animal metaphors that Isaiah is using. This is a picture of the natural tendencies of people more than it is of animals. See, in the natural world, some people are predatory, right? Some people prey on those who are weaker. But after the second advent, those natural human tendencies will pass away. And humankind will be a new creation, restored to the former glory of humanity as that of the image and likeness of God. The original humans, just as God placed them in the garden. So we see from this passage in Isaiah that the first advent of Christ is inextricably, you like that word? inextricably linked to the second advent of Christ. We can't separate the two events. The first makes ready for the second. It's all part of the one plan. It's all plan A and there is no plan B. And that leads us from the prophecy to the promises. See, the prophecy is tied to the promises. The prophecy of Isaiah is tied to the promises of God, the promises of God to his people that he would provide a way back to the garden. And God's been in motion to reconcile us back to him since before the fall. Since before Adam and Eve ate the apple, since before time began, it's a bit hard for us mere mortals to grasp that concept, isn't it? Except when we realize that we're not mere mortals at all. By design, we were created to be in eternal communion with God the Father. It's hard to understand because in the natural, we tend to see things on a linear timetable, don't we? We've discussed this before on more than one occasion. We certainly discussed it in... Wednesday night Bible study, but we as humans tend to see things on a linear timetable of days, weeks, months, years, etc. See, but God sees everything all at once. He sees past, present, and future. He's outside of the timetable. See, from God's perspective, it's all happening right now, past, present, future. So he knows the fall from the garden will occur, did occur, is occurring. It's all the same to him. So God has a solution to our problem, the promise of the advent. The first advent of the Christmas story that doesn't talk about mangers or ends full to capacity or angels or bright guiding stars suspended over sleepy towns named Bethlehem. No, that's not the Christmas story. Of the original advent. See the first advent that began long long ago. With respect to this human timeline that we're on. The story that starts in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, 
and the darkness did not overcome it. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. That's out of the Gospel of John, the first chapter, verses 1 through 5, and then verse 14, tacked on to the end there. See, the word to which John refers is, in fact, Jesus. Jesus is the word. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, God communicated his word to us, to the people, through the prophets. And so we read the Old Testament today. It's part of the Bible that we consider to be God's inspired word, Old and New Testaments. God communicated his word to his people through the prophets. But in the New Testament, the new covenant, God communicated his words by becoming the living embodiment of his word. And so if we take that scripture from John 1 and we place the name of Jesus into it, it still makes perfect sense. Listen to this. In the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Jesus was life and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. And Jesus became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. See, the prophecy becomes the promise. The prophecy becomes the promise. The promise of what? Well, it's on the wall. The promise of hope. The promise of peace. The promise of joy. The promise of love. And so we have the prophecy, which becomes the promise. And now, because we have the promise and we know what the prophecy says, now it's time for what? Preparation. So here's the thing. Because the first advent has occurred, because the first part of Isaiah's prophecy has come to pass in the coming of the Christ child, we have every reason to trust that the second half of Isaiah's prophecy will also come to pass. Why would we doubt? It's only logical. And so our gospel this morning that Bobby read speaks to this. The, the, the gospel of Mark. See, the theologians have told us after much investigation that the gospel of Mark was written about 50 to 60 A.D. Written by John Mark. The son of Mary, oh, uh, not Mary, Jesus's mother, but the other Mary, a wealthy woman of position in Jerusalem. You can read a little bit about her in Acts. It's believed he was the cousin of Barnabas. You can read about that in Colossians. And it was a close friend of perhaps converted by even the apostle Peter. 
First Peter is a good reference for that. It's generally agreed that Mark received much of his information from Peter. And because of Peter's, here's a, a phrase, apostolic authority. In other words, his closeness, his relationship with Jesus himself. There was never any challenge by any of the people who decided what books of the Bible should go into the Bible. There was never any challenge to Mark's account being included in what we call the canon of Scripture, the Bible. Mark's focus was bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. That's us. And he wrote about Christ being a servant and Christ being a sacrifice. And so that's what this opening of Mark is talking about to us. Even referencing the prophet Isaiah in the second verse. Listen to this. It says the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. See, John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This was John the Baptist's mission and ministry. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out into this wilderness to meet John the Baptist and be baptized by him in the River Jordan. Confessing their sins. And John was a different sort of, sort of guy. He was clothed not in cloth, but in camel's hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. In other words, whatever he could get his hands on. And he proclaimed as a prophet of God that the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And as we pause for a second after reading those opening verses of Mark's gospel account. We get a real sense of the sacrificial attitude, the servant's heart of John the Baptist. Everything about him speaks humility. He moves through the wilderness without the comfort of shelter, without the niceties that we take for granted. His clothes are not fine. His diet is whatever is at hand. And we see from this package uh, that Isaiah gives us and that Mark gives us, if we look at it together, tie it up in a nice little scripture package, we see that there is a hunger in the land. There's a need that's moving through the people of Judea, driving them out of their comfort zones, their homes, everything that they know to be important in life, driving them out into the countryside to hear John and to be baptized in the River Jordan. 
John's message is a message that speaks to people in need. It's a message of hope. It's a message of the promise of one greater than he coming to baptize the people, not with water, but with revival, with renewal, with redemption, with the Holy Spirit of God. There's a hunger for this. And the hunger didn't go away. It's still out there in this community. People who are in their comfort zones, or in some cases their uncomfort zones, that have a need, even if they haven't figured out what that need is yet. They need this message of repentance and preparation, of confessing and cleansing, of forgiveness and righteousness. It's a message that has a sense of urgency about it as one crying out in the wilderness, smoothing out the path, making the way, making ready for the way, the arrival of the Lord. Can you, can you hear it? Oh, it might be a whimper, but it is a cry in the wilderness out there. Something's missing in the lives of people in this very community. These, there are those among us who are suffering in silence. There are those among us whose pain is a little bit more obvious than that. There are those among us who need cleansing, those who need financial stability, those who need healing in their relationships, in their marriages. There are those who don't know Jesus. Those who have missed the narrow gate and they are running headlong into the oblivion of this broader way. And so because of that, we need more John the Baptists out there. More voices crying out in the wilderness saying, make ready, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so my question this morning is, are you ready? Are you prepared for Jesus's return? Is your house in order? Is your soul right with God? And equally important, are you preparing the way for others? Are you a voice crying in the wilderness, this mission field of our community, telling people the good news of Christ? Not only does Mark talk about this, but one final passage of scripture before I close. Matthew chapter 11 also talks about John the Baptist. Matthew says, I baptize you with water for repentance. This is John the Baptist talking. But one who is more powerful than I is coming after me, and I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. See, Matthew adds that element of fire. It's Holy Spirit fire to be sure, but there's, there's a connotation here that we need to take note of. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. 
And herein lies the reason for our preparation. See, the good wheat he's going to gather into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I don't know about you, but I have this natural aversion to burning in unquenchable fire. I don't want any part of that. And neither should you. And what's more, you shouldn't want that for anyone, especially those that you love and care about. See, I want to be gathered like the good wheat. Not only that, but I want Angela to be gathered like the good wheat. I want my children, who I love also, to be gathered like the good wheat. I don't want any of them to perish in unquenchable fire. So I know that I want to be ready and I want to be prepared. I want to be ready so I can help others get ready because the second advent is coming more surely than the sun will rise tomorrow. It's not a guess. It's coming. I can't tell you when, because only the Father knows, but it's coming. It's a certainty. And it's going to take many of those folks out there by surprise. Don't be one of those who are not ready. Don't let anyone you love be one of those who are not ready. Because the prophecy becomes the promise. And the promise is true. And the truth of that promise requires preparation. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you would all please stand and let's raise our voices um, to our final hymn of the day. It is well with our souls. 